This week on Ford, writer for The Atlantic, Johns Hopkins professor and founder of Persuasion Magazine, author of the new book, The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure, Yasha Munk joins us on Ford this week. It is my pleasure to welcome to Forward Johns Hopkins professor, author of The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure, and founder of Persuasion Magazine, Yasha Munk. Yasha, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Uh, well, I've admired your writing for quite some time. Uh, you write in The Atlantic, and some of the themes you hit, I mean, your themes are, are relatively diverse, but they do tend to center around... Uh, what you'd call classical liberalism, uh, I would say. Is that fair? I, I say philosophical liberalism. Because classical liberalism always assumes you want like really small government and economic affairs where, you know, I'm a little bit more on the center left. Uh, but yeah, it's the idea that the basis of a just society is giving individuals rights and responsibilities. Most people, when you describe it that way, get on board. <laughs> philosophical liberalism, persuasion not community. Um, so I thought your book was really important, and your book lays out a bunch of challenges that I, I want to describe to people. So there is a conception, which is borne out by fact, that the United States is becoming more diverse quickly. Um, it's projected to become majority non-white circa 2040 or 2050, around, around that time frame. Uh, and then in some quarters, that's presented as like a great thing. And it's like, oh, it's uh, it's something positive. Um, and that narrative uh, gets oversimplified as something like diversity is our strength. A and then there's another narrative that's like, hey, uh, we should be concerned about this because, you know, that th this is going to affect our lives. And there's some, you know, xenophobia baked into that uh, sometimes. You can see this um, schism in our politics where the Republican Party is taking on a nativist tone. And the Democratic Party is taking on this uh, diversity is good tone. And you present something I would describe as like a middle ground, which is like, look, um, diversity actually does have challenges uh, and that there is this tribalism that can, um, in the worst of cases, actually uh, tear countries apart. Yeah, so so my starting point is that what we're trying to do is actually something really new and unprecedented. Hence the great so, experiment. But hence the great experiment, yeah. So, so we have had lots of societies in the history of the world that were pretty homogeneous. Uh, we've had lots of democracies that are pretty homogeneous that, that succeed. We've had lots of democracies like the United States that have always been diverse, but that basically worked by saying, hey, we're going to give all the rights and privileges to one group and then treat the other groups really, really terribly, as we did in the United States with, with slavery. What we haven't really done is to have these deeply ethnically, religiously diverse societies like the United States today, in which we manage to treat everybody equally, in which we actually give... Uh, everybody real belonging and 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 a fair shot um and and that is a difficult thing to do for a number of reasons it's difficult because it goes uh, in some ways against our human psychology um we find it really easy as humans to form groups and say this is our group and i'm going to treat the members of a group really well and everybody who doesn't belong to the group really badly and that's one of the starting points in your book is that look not just americans but human beings are groupish hmm. kind of tribal and you can drive them to be very, very mean, uh, even with the most ridiculous distinction, <laughs> where it's like you just stick a color T-shirt on one group, another color T-shirt, and all of a sudden they're persecuting the the uh, uh, other team very quickly. Yeah, I've done it for my students who you know think of themselves in some ways for good reason as the most tolerant and open-minded, and they would never discriminate against anybody. Uh, and when you ask them, is a hot dog a sandwich? And half the students say yes, and half the students say no, and when you have them play a little game, and the people who say that a hot dog is a sandwich start to discriminate against the people who say a hot dog is not a sandwich. So this ability... How could anyone think a hot dog is not a sandwich? I know, right? <laughs> You're not going to treat them okay. I mean, come on. Um, so there's lots of studies which show, which show this, right? That, that it's really easy to create those groups and then we start to favor the in-group over the out-group. And in real life, those groups are often along ethnic and religious lines. And so when you look at some of the worst tragedies in the history of the world... Uh, they were often uh, because of that clash of between ethnic or religious conflict. Yeah, from the Holocaust to the genocide in Rwanda to lots and lots of instances 
throughout history. And so I think we have to recognize that what we're trying to do is actually really difficult. But ironically, that might make us more optimistic. Because at the moment, what I feel like is so people say, hey, how hard is it not to be a bigot? You know, How hard is it not to treat people badly? How hard is it for people from different parts of the world to live together how well? Hard it shouldn't it be so hard. If it shouldn't be so hard, and yet we have problems, we have real injustices in our society, we have real discrimination in our society, that means we're somehow uniquely bad, right? We're terribly failing by the standards of anywhere else. But when you read some history and when you understand psychology, you recognize, hey, it is actually quite difficult. And wow. you know what? Despite our injustices, we're doing pretty well relative to most other societies in history. I think, ironically, if you realize the difficulty of the experiment we're in, that also becomes grounds for optimism about how well we're doing and whether we can succeed. I want to dig into that because I think it's very, very important. But people who are listening or watching right now sense that you have a bit of an accent. You're yeah, a global right. citizen. <laughs> Um, so do you want to retrace your, your steps a little bit? Because a lot of your examples from the, from, uh, the book are from all over the world. Yeah, so, I'm, uh, so, so my grandparents were born in what uh, today is Ukrainian territory around uh, Lviv. Um, uh, they were Jewish. Uh, they were convinced communists. They grew up in, in religious families, but as teenagers, you know, became convinced uh, of, of, you know, wanting to build what they thought would be a better society. They uh, survived the Holocaust in, uh, in, in the Soviet Union, they're Jewish, of course. Um, uh, went back to Poland to build up the system there. Realized that it was unjust and saw the system turn on them in a big anti-Semitic pogrom in 1968. Then my family sort of scattered uh, and I ended up growing up in Germany, uh, which is obviously an interesting kind of uh, constellation. Uh, and then went to college in England, lived a little bit in Italy and, and France, and I've been living in the United States now for quite a while. I became a citizen about five years ago. So Congratulations! <laughs> Making America a bit more learned, I would say. I think you're dragging the average uh, educational level up since I think you have a, a like a doctorate or some fancy degree. <laughs> yeah, I came here to, you know, for grad school. But I, I don't know if that's a good thing. You know, this is, this is an interesting thing that I think about when I'm in the States, right? So we think a lot about lacking diversity today in America, and that is a problem in certain circles for sure. But when I look at the, at the set of people who I've studied with, uh, who are my classmates, who are my students now, who are my friends and colleagues in the United States, it's a pretty diverse bunch. Could always be more diverse, but it's really pretty diverse, ethnically, religiously, in virtually every way, except for class, right? As somebody who came to this country as an immigrant to come to grad school, I know very few people who didn't go to fancy universities. I know very few people who don't have a graduate degree. And so I actually think that class division in America at the moment is, is a real problem. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it, and it's uh, getting more ossified where there's this Horatio Alger idea you could go from ranks to riches, but now it's tougher and tougher because of um, the, the way the institutions have built up. Um, so you ask a really fundamental question. It's like, hey, how hard is it not to be a bigot? Uh, and that there are a couple answers to that question. One could be like, look, it's super easy not to be a bigot. So if you are bigoted, then uh, we should uh, toss you out of society. Um, uh, the other is that uh, there is a degree of bigotry baked in. I I'm going to share a, a bit of experience I, I have. So I'm Asian, you probably gathered. I grew up in, in the US um, and I got uh, teased and uh, called out for being one of the only Asian kids in my town all the time. Um, and so for me, like I, I expect there to be a degree of tribalism uh, or even bigotry baked into most interactions, <laughs> which, you know, like may give me a certain uh, view of human nature. But I, I think that what you're, uh, what you're saying here is actually really profound, which is look, um, instead of treating everyone who uh, has any trace of bigotry, either internal or evincing it as like somehow like an outlier and ridiculously malignant instead to say, look, we should know that this is going to be an ongoing tension uh, and we have to actually try and invest in managing it. Look, I think that shouldn't be an excuse um, to indulge in our worst instincts, right? It shouldn't be an excuse to say, oh, well, you know, I have an irrational prejudice against this group, but that's fine, everybody's bigot, so let me indulge with prejudice, right? That's certainly not what we should say. But it should make us a little bit more sympathetic to each other. Um, it should make us realize that we all have our own flaws and that we're all sitting in a glass house and we shouldn't throw with stones. Talking about this divide between an educational and socioeconomic elite in the United States and everywhere else, one thing that strikes me about America today 
is just the disdain that a lot of people in that elite class have for everybody else. We're like, we are the tolerant ones, we are the progressive oh, ones, yeah, no, we are wonderful. It's, it's so messed up. And like the average of a population is really bigoted and is really terrible. And so wrong. You can't be a Democrat, I don't mean in terms of a party, a small D-Democrat, you can't believe in democracy if you think that most people aren't capable of responding to moral reasons most of the time. And I think we, we all have this in us. We have a sort of travel instinct, right? Even my students have it. Uh, how dare you say that a sandwich Dude, is not a hot dog? So, and we also so, have our, the better angels of our in, of our nature. And so, the, the task of politics is to appeal to those better angels of our nature. So I ran for president and spent a lot of time in uh, the Midwest, uh, Iowa, Ohio, Michigan, mostly Iowa because of the mechanics. Right. And I can't tell you how many people uh, in New York or California would ask me about what people are like in Iowa as if they'd be like completely. Right, right. Uh, you know, backwards or, you know, like uh, from from a completely another time. Uh, and I found the people of Iowa to be, by and large, positive, delightful, smart, uh, engaged, well-informed. Um, uh, so when you talk about the, these biases that people have, they're really strong. And, and this is one of the things that scares me the most about what's going on in American life, which is you have, let's call it the educated class, the elites, um, and they do kind of uh, look down their nose at or condescend to, to what I, I called in my last book, normal people, because about a third of Americans have a college degree. So two thirds hmm. don't. <laughs> and so if you're looking at two thirds of the population and painting them with a very broad brush, I mean, like, that, you know, that ends up leading you in very negative directions. Yeah. And so for me, then the question becomes, look, you know, when I was 20, right, I sort of thought, hey, wouldn't it be great to live in a society where people don't particularly define by groups, right? Because something irrational about these groups, why should you care about a particular group? Because you happen to share an ancestry or because you happen to share some kind of background. Um, and why should you treat somebody better just because they're living down the street rather than on the other end of the of the earth? So I thought, you know, what we should fight for is 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 a politics where people don't believe in nations particularly, where uh, you know they care as much about somebody five thousand miles away than than the same town. Um, but I think that that's actually a profound mistake. Yeah, yeah, um, you didn't go that direction in the book. <laughs> no, and it's it's a mistake because of a number of reasons. The first is that you've seen with with Donald Trump and others. What happens when we leave the sort of powerful symbolism uh, uh, and resonance of a nation state to the worst kinds of people? The um, fact that the American <clears throat> flag may itself be politicized is something that troubles me deeply. Uh, where I, I was running a campaign and we used the flag and then people were like, oh, can't use the flag. It's like a Trump symbol. And it's like, look, if the flag's a Trump symbol, right. we're fucked. <laughs> exactly. If we, if, we, if we let Trump own the flag, that is... Uh, I mean, substantively terrible because the flag actually stands for something beautiful, but it's also uh, just politically terrible yeah, exactly. because it has a lot of power. And if he's the only one who's waving it, that makes him more attractive, right? Um, so, so that's one thing. And and when I just realized how difficult it is to care the same about everyone in the world. I mean, there was this terrible shooting in the subway in, in New York a few days ago. Uh, I cared about that more than a shooting somewhere else, not because I'm objectively think it's more important, but because I've lived in New York for a long time, because I can picture the place, because I can picture the faces of the people on the subway. And and that's fine. So the fundamental question in an ethnically and religiously diverse society is, how do we respect the fact that people have these allegiances and will always be defined by them, but how do we also get them to cooperate? Yeah. Um, and that's where philosophical liberalism actually comes in, right? So one way of asking this question is, where's the state, where's the group, where's the individual? what should the relationship between them be? Yeah. And there are some people who are sometimes called communitarians or multiculturalists who are basically saying, look, you know, we should think of something like the United States just as an association of associations. Right? We're not one country with 280 million or whatever it is, individuals and citizens. We are a country where there's, uh, you know, Asian Americans and African Americans and whites and there's the, uh, you know, Southern Baptist Church and the whatever. And it's just a sort of conglomerate of these different associations. Right? And I think that's a profound mistake because at that point, for example, if you are born into one group but you don't identify with it, you don't want to be defined by it, or perhaps you want to marry somebody from a different group, you don't want to engage in the same religious worship as your parents, the state has no legitimacy for coming and ensuring that you can do that. 
So what we need is, is two freedoms at the same time. We need the freedom of the individuals, which includes the groups of which they belong to be free from the oppression of the state and the tyranny of majority, right? You should be able to grow up without people making fun of you for, for, for being Asian American. Um, uh, Muslims should be able to go to, to mosque, Jews should be able to go to synagogue without yes. fear of, of attack. We should be able to criticize the government without being locked up as people are in Russia at the moment for, for criticizing the, the war with, with, with Ukraine. Those are all the sort of classical freedoms. Um, but we also need to make sure that the state protects us from what Dana Samoglu and James Robinson call the cage of norms. That the state protects us from the way in which our own parents, our own priests or imams or, or, or rabbis, our own neighbors might tell us, this is how you have to live. And you know, if you're gay and our community thinks that that's a sin, we're gonna send you off to conversion therapy. If uh, uh, you know, we believe that sex before marriage you, is a you, sin you and you have a boyfriend, like we're gonna go and beat you up. Right? Like, it, protection from the out group and protection from the in group is the way you characterize it. Exactly, so we have to have this double freedom. And the only way to think of that is through a philosophically liberal framework, which Do you have says, protections against Asian parents who tell you that you can only do one of three? I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I think that's, you know, good, good, uh, uh, you know, good health insurance, but means you can go see a therapist. That, <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, what, what, what that means is that uh, uh, the way that liberals should think about groups is that we're always going to have groups in our society, and, and that's a good thing. We should value them. Um, but we value them precisely because you have a freedom to leave. Now, most people might not do that, right? You might make a joke about it, but you're going to honor your parents. You're going to feel that that is an important association that, that you have to live up to, even though you didn't choose it. That's, that's fine. Most people have a religion of their parents, for example. But if you want to leave a religion of your parents, you have a right to do that. If for whatever reason you want to con cut contact with your parents because you feel like they've mistreated you, you have a right to do that. And so... The reason why we respect groups is precisely because we live in a society where people can opt out of them if they choose. And so that's the way to respect the individual, to respect groups, and to hopefully then have a sense of common identity at the national level as well. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So you talk about the pitfalls that diverse democracies can succumb to, uh, and you characterize them in three buckets, which I found to be very, very interesting. Uh, anarchy, domination, uh, and fragmentation. And uh, they can take different forms, but can you talk about uh, how these manifest? Yeah, so when you look at the ways in which diverse societies have often fallen apart in really cruel and violent ways, um, uh, this is three of the key pitfalls, right? So the first is a form of structured anarchy, in which uh, there's so many different groups competing and being so mistrustful to each other that they never even manage to build a state or that they undermine a state over time because they say, hey, perhaps your group is going to capture the state and that's going to be really bad for me. So let's just make sure that there isn't even a strong state to capture in the first place. And that helps to explain what you're seeing today in Afghanistan, what you're seeing in Somalia, what you're seeing in many places 
uh, where you don't have a good educational system, a good uh, health system, where there's underfunding in roads and all of those things because there's this rivalry between groups. Now, one kind of solution to that is domination, which is to say one group wins and imposes its might on the others. And that might allow you to sustain some form of public order, but it often comes at the expense of the groups that have been dominated. Um, and especially in its most extreme forms, that is um, uh, you know, entirely unjustifiable. So you get slavery in the United States and other forms of just extreme exclusion of an exploitation of, of the groups that are dominated, right? And then the third is what are called fragmentation. So the third is you say, look, we're going to have this way in which we somehow try to coexist, in which we have a kind of state that can do certain things, but the most important decisions are going to be subject to your particular group or community. So Lebanon is a great example. There's not really people who have a Lebanese identity and a lot of things that um, are most important are not regulated by the Lebanese state, but rather the laws governing your marriage and divorce and education and all of those things will come from within your Shiite group or within your Sunni group or within your Maronite Christian group. Um, and that's dangerous as well because it actually often means that people have no democratic control over many important things because there's no Shia parliament. You just have to listen to, to your religious elders. Um, and because it makes it really hard to have contact between members of those different groups. I have two good Lebanese friends who come from different parts of that divide. And when they got married in Lebanon, the state for years wouldn't even acknowledge their marriage because there is no such thing as a Lebanese wedding. There's only a wedding within each of the communities. So wow. suddenly people from different communities that's, can't intermix. That's that bizarre from an American perspective, obviously. Yeah. To the extent that these dangers are present in the United States, I mean, people can listen to that and be like, is it anarchy? Is it domination? Is it fragmentation? Uh, like, wh which do you think that we're most likely to be facing? Well, I think in some ways we're facing uh, the threat of each of them. So obviously we have had in our history a deep form of domination and we're still feeling the after effects of that um, with disadvantages and discrimination of African-Americans, for example. I think there is a danger of a, f a small form of structured anarchy. So obviously we have a very powerful state and military and so on. We're not going to completely fall apart uh, uh, like some other countries are. But there is research which suggests that when you have a lot of ethnic and religious diversity and people don't feel a common bond, it becomes harder to sustain a welfare state. It becomes harder to say, hey, we have you should have solidarity with each other. We start to think, oh, well, hang on a second. My tax goes to people like them over there rather than people who are like me. So why should I be paying taxes? Why should I agree to do that? And third, I think there is a real danger of, of fragmentation, a real danger of sort of change culture in the United States, telling people the most important thing about you is your, is your membership in a particular group and that forms how you perceive the world in such a fundamental way that you don't really have a general connection to members of other groups. And so rather than being a society of American citizens that respect each other, we just become this confederation of rival tribes. And one of the interesting things about the book is that democracies actually can be more susceptible to conflict if a group feels like, okay, I'm never going to win in this uh, democratic process, so I, I guess we'll have to do something else. Um, uh, it's one reason why you don't want people to be falling into what Madison calls these fixed factions that, that don't shift or change. Yeah, you need to be able to think that you're going to win the next election if you manage to persuade enough people. Now, there's two kinds of circumstances in which you might lose that. One is if you have such inflexible ethnic divisions but everybody always just votes for the ethnic tribe. And so actually persuasion and policy programs and performance in government don't matter. Politics just becomes, uh, you know, one group against another group, yeah. Counting up the numbers, right? And the other is when you feel that if you lose an election, the other party might become so oppressive or might stop you from speaking out, might stop your free speech, might, might constrain your influence so much, but you then will no longer have a fair chance of winning the next election. Right. The brilliance of election, I talked earlier about how they make things more difficult in some ways, but we also make things more easy in one way, which is to say, hey, I lost this election. I really hate it. I don't like the person who's in charge. But you know what? I get another shot in four years. And so I can accept the legitimacy of a rule because I have a shot of winning the next time around. When people lose their confidence in that, that becomes really dangerous. So there are a couple of metaphors that you draw out in question and then you present a new one, which I liked a great deal. Okay. Metaphor number one, the melting pot. People come here and they assimilate. And I will say when I came of age, the melting pot, I think, was the 
dominant frame in the metaphor. Now, people thought that that was a little bit too uh, assimilationist, shall we say. And so that got replaced by the salad bowl, which is that we're all in there and you have different elements and we're kind of doing our own thing. And you say, once again, there's a middle ground and you call it the park, the public park, where you go, you hang out with whoever you came with, but you interact with other people. You kind of bounce between groups. How long did it take you to come up with the park? <laughs> it took me a while because, you know, all the different metaphors you can come up with tend to presuppose too much commonality of purpose. So somebody was like, you know, what about an orchestra? And that sounds beautiful. You know, I want to be an orchestra. And you can see the point, right? You have people playing different instruments, but together it creates a beautiful sound. But the problem with something like an orchestra is you all have to choose to play the same piece of music and you all have to be cooperating in this kind of way. But that's not how we think of it in a free society. So it's going, not, yeah. you have your own purposes in life. You're not coordinating your purposes in life of all the other citizens, right? Yeah. So yeah, look, the melting pot was this dominant uh, idea. And as you're saying, it's just asking too much of people because it's saying, you know, even though your culture might influence the overall culture, in the end, we'll all sort of be identical to each other. And that's asking too much and it's also not very attractive. I love the fact that you go around New York and you see these different communities. That's one of the wonderful things about the city. It's wonderful things about the country. Now, on the other end, you have a sort of salad bowl of a mosaic. And that's basically saying people are just going to live next to each other, right? They're not going to have contact with each other. Everybody is neatly part of their own groups. And that to me feels too much like society is, is falling apart. We have no points of common contact. And it's going to get oppressive for the members of those groups because they don't have a freedom to go and engage with individuals from other groups in the same kind of way. And so the public park to me is beautiful because, you know, the two of us could, could choose to go and you know, sit in Bryant Park after this and, yes. and hang out um, and not talk to anybody else. Play or some perhaps chess. we'll play some chess. I would love to play chess. Um, ask Gary Kasparov to join us. Um, and, and perhaps we could go and chat with some other people in the park and, and make a new friendship, right? So you have the right to stay among your own group or you have a right to, to venture out. And we can say, look, that's each person's right, right? If you're Amish in the United States, you can just live in the Amish community, have Amish friends, that's perfectly fine. That's your right, you're being a good citizen. No problem at all with it. But as a society, if everybody just chose to stay completely within their own group, if there was no contact between groups at all, that would be a less attractive society. Um, and I think the, the metaphor of a public park expresses that nicely. If everybody's just looking down or talking to each other, that's a lot less attractive than when you feel like it's a park where there's also a space of encounter. Yeah, and you need to take care of the park together or else, you know, uh, you'll end up with piles of garbage and uh, the rest of it. It won't be a place where people want to go and uh, convene. This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online... I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN dot com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. So you distinguish between two types of patriotism, which I found very interesting. 
first you think we should invest in patriotism, and I totally mm-hmm. agree. And then you distinguish between civic patriotism, which you're probably higher on than most anyone else because you became a citizen five years ago, took a test, you know all the stuff about checks and balances and our constitution and the rest of it. I had a difficult, really difficult question in my citizenship test, actually. They asked how many justices are on the Supreme Court. And the problem was that at the time, there was a seat that's vacant. And it doesn't say anyone in the Constitution, know, but it's got to be nine of them. Nine. So, yeah, I, I said it, nine, but, but I was like, say I said, like, look, true. I think look, if you answer that's nine, but you know, and it's like, yeah, yeah, fine. I've ticked the right answer. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's true. The Constitution doesn't specify a number. And there have been different numbers at different points in time. You're too smart for this test. So civic patriotism, you think, falls short in a particular way, which I agree with. A lot of Americans don't actually really understand our system very well. Heck, I've been trying to explain how messed up the current uh, closed party primary system is in terms of distorting our politics and the rest of it. And I have to say, you know, it's easier to get people excited about a thousand bucks a month than than it is. uh, (laughs) I believe it. (laughs) Even though, in my opinion, nothing's going to change unless we get the system right. Mm. But uh, so I, I tend to agree with you that there are limitations on this appeal to civic patriotism. And so then you say, you know, what we should be investing in is what you'd call cultural patriotism. So first of all, look, as a German Jew, patriotism or nationalism did not come naturally to me, right? I'm deeply aware of the the negative potential, the negative aspects that nationalism can have when it becomes exclusionary, when it becomes militaristic, when it becomes aggressive. And that's a danger that always remains. So I think of patriotism as a kind of half domesticated beast that uh, if we leave it to the worst kinds of people like Trump to exploit, it becomes really dangerous. Uh, We have to tame it. We have to make it useful. Um, but it always will also have that, that, that dark potential. We always have to be, look out for that. But patriotism is also the thing that can tie us to each other, right? It's the thing that can make sure that our society doesn't fall apart. It can be the thing, as we see in Ukraine today, that can make people courageous, that can make millions of people say, I'm going to fight for the independence of, of, of our country against this, this terrible invasion. So it can really also be a very positive thing. But then the question becomes, what should it look like? Yeah, now, what is culturally patriotic? Yeah, so so historically, one notion just to put out was been ethnic nationalism, right? Was to say we define who belongs by ethnicity, and that's obviously really wrong. And this is right? uh, you know Trumpian temptation again, but continue. Yeah, exactly. That is to say, you know, whites are rural Americans, and everybody else is not, and and that's normatively wrong, right? Because it excludes a lot of people uh, uh, who have great contributions to this country. Uh, it's also by the way empirically wrong because most people no longer think like that, right? Most people. Uh, uh, don't think that the only real Americans are, are white. And the same is true now in Germany and, and France and uh, lots of countries in Europe where that used to be different. Now, normally what philosophers, you know, I studied philosophy in college um, and in grad school, uh, what they would say is, so we need civic patriotism, we need constitutional patriotism, right? If we've got to have patriotism, the only way to make it uh, sort of work and not noxious is to say, it's about our values, it's about our constitution. The constitution, yes. Yeah. And look, that's great. And and I think it's an important element because that's what makes it possible to be a patriotic dissenter, right? The brave people in Moscow over the last months who've protested against war saying, not in our name, not in the name of a Russian nation. That's a great act of patriotism because uh, you can say our nation is about a set of values. And when our nation violates those values, then I'm actually going to stand up against that. So there's something very important to that. I think we should have an element of civic patriotism. But when you go around Iowa and talk to people and say, why do you love America? Most of them are not going to save the Constitution. and They're not going to tell you this is in the Seventh Amendment because most people just don't care that much about politics. And so I think when most Americans say, I love my country, what they love is the city they grew up in, the landscapes in the country, the sights and smells and sounds of the country, the kind of cultural script, just the way we interact, the, the, the way you say hello, the way you say goodbye, the kind of... Uh, uh, just normal things of everyday life, the celebrities, the TikTok stars, just just the overall culture. And that culture is that might be influenced by the past in certain ways, but but is rooted in a dynamic present, is looking towards the future, and is diverse in a really natural way. And it seems to me that uh, most Americans underestimate the force of that. They feel it, actually, but at the abstract level, they don't realize that. And so when we think about patriotism, I think we should defensive patriotism, but we should also be comfortable with this form of dynamic, inclusive, cultural patriotism. There's a very big discussion on, I think this could be one of your major contributions. There's a rising perception that America is uh, fractured into these different groups uh, and is also irredeemably racist and is unable to to reverse what you call the domination, the vestiges of slavery and other inequities. 
And I think that this is something that is increasingly um, potent, particularly on social media, um, where there are certainly various marginalized groups. I think the argument I saw you make is that, look, first, like uh, America does have problems, but if you view it as irredeemably racist, it ends up leading you to negative places. And so you should acknowledge the progress and the problems, but there are real things that you can try and rally around and celebrate. And if you cast these things more positively, then it actually is more constructive. It will lead you to better places than if you see us as permanently fractured. I talk in the book about the way in which many diverse societies have been marked by domination and how that has really long-term effects. And that's obviously true in the United States with slavery as well as with other injustices. And so today we continue to pay the price for that. It's because of that history of injustice that African-Americans earn less on average, but there's a significant wealth gap. So I don't want to pretend that everything is fine. But there is also a weird kind of pessimism at the moment on which the extreme right and large parts of the left and large parts of the mainstream, frankly, touch. So, you know, somebody on the Afro-nationalist right is going to say, hey, the reason why Marcus is historically being great is uh, that its dominant group was so wonderful because it's white and Christian and whatever else. And, you know, all of these immigrants coming in today, they're somehow inferior. So the mainstream and the left is going to say, well, that's really offensive and, and, and wrong. And blaming the groups that are disadvantaged for their misfortune is perverse. And I agree, obviously, with that complete rejection of the causal attribution on the right. But then a lot of people in the mainstream and the left are going to say something similar, which is, look, you know, Italian and Irish immigrants 100 years ago, they could succeed um, because they were white and were treated well. But immigrants today, they're discriminated against so badly that they don't stand a shot. And so actually, we are failing at integrating people. We are failing at allowing minority groups to make socioeconomic progress. Now, there obviously is ongoing discrimination and, and, and racism, that's absolutely clear. But I looked at some of the best empirical studies on this, and they showed a very different picture. The best study by economists at Stanford and Princeton and other places with over a million data points, I know you like data, I do. shows that actually it's a slow process of integration. It was slow in with Italian and Irish immigrants 100 years ago. It took a while until they earned as much as the average of the population. But integration and socioeconomic progress today for immigrants from... Mexico and El Salvador and Vietnam and Kenya and all kinds of places around the world is about as fast as it was for Italian and Irish immigrants 100 years ago. Now, what does that show us? It shows us that those people on the far right are wrong to say that somehow today's crop of immigrants is, is less hardworking or less talented or less capable of integrating than Italian and Irish immigrants 100 years ago. But it also shows us that the narrative according to which our society just is so discriminatory that people don't stand a chance is thankfully also wrong. And that's something that we should be, that we should be happy about. Now, when you look at uh, African-Americans, um, you get a mixed picture where uh, there's, a, there's a substantial number of African-Americans who are living in concentrated poverty, which is explained by, by that history of injustice. And that's an injustice that, that we really have to struggle against. But you also see that Donald Trump was wrong when he turned to black voters and said, you got nothing to lose, right? That was not only offensive, it was wrong because the median African-American today has gone to college for a few years, lives in, in a relatively affluent suburb, has a white-collar job, has employer-sponsored health insurance, and by the way, is more optimistic about the future than the average white American. And so despite the injustice that, that definitely exists, this idea of a present state of reality as an unmitigated dystopia uh, just happens to be wrong. Oh, well, that's optimistic. Um, and I would say practical, because one, one of the things if you say, look, you know, America's irredeemably racist, like, what do you do with that belief? At that point, it, it becomes, right. uh, you know, like hard to, to head in a positive direction. Um, some of the studies you cite in the book, I found very interesting, which is that contact with members of different groups, different ethnic groups in particular, doesn't necessarily improve your attitudes unless there are a bunch of things in place. Mm. Uh, and so I, I thought that was fascinating because a lot of people imagine that if you're just exposed to other groups, you're going to be less biased against them. But it turns out it needs to be a certain type of exposure. Yeah, and I think the really deep body of literature on this can teach us a lot about how to set up our institutions today. There's this thing called intergroup contact theory, which basically says, hey, you know, if you uh, are aware of some group, but you don't actually have contact with members of them, it's very easy to be prejudiced and say, oh, they must all be terrible. Then once you, you know, have contact with them and perhaps work together, perhaps have neighbors, uh, you're going to have a more positive view. Um, and there's lots of striking examples of that. So one of the first classic studies was 
looking at different housing blocks in Boston, one that was segregated, one that was integrated. And it turned out that in the integrated housing block, uh, uh, whites had a much more positive opinion of African-Americans. In the segregated ones, were, they were much more bigoted. Right? But uh, uh, over 50 years, we've also found that there are situations where that mechanism fails. There's lots of situations where that mechanism fails. And for it to succeed, we need to have equal status in some situation. We need to actually be part of the same team. We can't uh, either be or be framed as being in direct competition with each other in some kind of way. The ideal scenario is, you know, you take a bunch of 12-year-olds and you put them on the same sports team. Being in the same league competing against each other doesn't work, but being on the same team, you got to win together, you got to hold together. That's why sports is important. That really actually works. People are going to end up having much more positive views of each other, much less likely to, to be prejudiced. It sounds like, if you put them on military, different teams, it sounds like in a military unit it would be the same dynamic. Yeah, so the military is very, effect, is very effective at that for the same, for the same reason. No, but that's why I'm concerned, for example, when a lot of the pedagogy that we now have uh, in American schools, especially in elite private schools, uh, tries to tell people the most important thing about you is that you're different from those others. That is exactly the opposite of what you would do when you take this body of research seriously. When you have teachers coming in uh, and taking kids that are six or eight, and saying, we're going to put you into different affinity groups because the most important thing about you is that you're black or you're Asian American or you're white. Um, that frames to them, we're not part of the same team. We're competing in some kind of way. And then all of those mechanisms of in-group favoritism and out-group discrimination kick in. So I know that the hope is that you then take these white kids and you know you tell them about the prejudice they, they enjoy that are unfair and the, the injustice of American society and hopefully you're going to come out being anti-racist. I really worry that when you take these 80-year-old white kids and say the most important thing about you is that you're white and so on, they're going to end up saying, all right, so let's fight for the interests of whites. That is the worst kind of uh, outcome. Uh, uh, and I fear that we're creating the wrong society through that. And, and that if you are a young person of color, you think, okay, the main thing people see about me is my race. Uh, and and so that also can form like a different kind of attitude, which frankly I've heard about from friends, children uh, in New York City schools where like some, someone will come back and say, essentially like all, all my classmates are racist. Uh, and then you're like, oh, well, like how did this come about? And it was, well, because of like the fact that they got separated into various groups and then started to see their classmates as racist, which I dare say is a terrible thing for an eight-year-old to experience. Um, and, uh, you know, like is there racism, you know, among kids? Like I, I Yes, but I, I don't think that process is going to make it better, to your point. Yeah, you, you, you need to, you know, this is the argument of book, that to make a diverse democracy work, you have to understand some of the pitfalls and you have to understand some of the basic psychological mechanisms. You're saying that the, the studies would indicate that separating people into those groups would accentuate their differentness and not mitigate. Yeah, there's actually one interesting study uh, uh, that came out recently which shows that if you take white kids and you give them a lecture on white privilege, then they perform worse on the implicit association test afterwards. So it has exactly the opposite of the intended effect. Rather than them being more tolerant towards the outgroup, they become more likely to then have negative views about different ethnic well, groups. Well, that's a, that's a very powerful data point. Um, I will say I've got two boys who are nine and six, um, and for them to be sat down and uh, talked to about race um, does not strike me as a good thing because I don't think they really can understand or process what the heck uh, you know is being taught to them, and so it's going to give them some overly simplistic ideas mm. that um, that that they're probably not going to make good you know good use of. Yeah, and look, I think there's there's ways of of teaching things in an age-appropriate way that might be fine. The problem, of course, is, you know, is the average teacher going to do that in the best possible way? Um, uh, and you never know about that. But but I think just splitting kids into these groups, it's very different when you're talking about high school and it's 15, 16-year-olds who are saying, I choose to join some kind of after-school club. Yeah. That's, based, that's freedom of association. That's that's the normal group of societies. It's self-chosen. Yeah. But for the teacher to come in and say, hey, six-year-old kid, the most important thing about you is the color of your skin. And so we're going to put you in that group because that's who you are. Uh, that concerns me. And you make a larger point about not seeing demographics as political destiny and that doing so actually ends up leading you towards polarization uh, and, and division. 
And that if you're going to make an argument for policies, you wouldn't necessarily center it on someone's racial identity. You probably would want to do it around class. Yeah, this is one of the really weird things in American politics today. I mean, Democrats and Republicans don't agree on anything. Liberals and conservatives don't agree on anything. They agree on this one thing, which is a really big, speculative, <laughs> wrong theory about the future of this country, Yeah, which is that democracy is destiny. And you see this on the left and the right, right? So you see on the right this idea that, hey, white people vote for Republicans, but 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 other groups are less likely to vote for Republicans as we have more immigration, as we have demographic change. We're always going to lose. So let's put somebody like Trump in who's a wrecking ball. Let's do anything we can to disenfranchise people. Let's keep people out of the country. It drives that demographic panic on the right. But then it also drives this sort of triumphalism on the left that some of your competitors in the Democratic primary in 2020 had really strongly. We don't have to convince anybody. We don't have to moderate in order to appeal to where voters actually are. We just have to uh, mobilize some imaginary group of voters who are all for us anyway because of the color of their skin. Then we're going to miraculously win. And then they That's get really, really, really confused and annoyed if, like, for example, Latinos don't all uniformly vote in lockstep for, for the Democrats. I just read another report the other day, which was basically saying, why are Latinos voting for Republicans in greater numbers? Because uh, there's this like racialized misinformation that they're falling for. So the base is like all internalized white supremacists. <laughs> and it's like, you know, perhaps if you want to win over Latinos, I, listen. That's so ridiculously condescending. It's crazy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, oh, like, no, oh, sorry, you're voting for us. It's because you're a bigot. Do you think they're then going to more likely to vote? It's really important for Democrats to persuade Latinos to vote for them. I know you have other interests, perhaps, with, with the Ford Party, but you know I don't want Donald Trump to get reelected in 2024. I want Latinos to vote for Democrats. That's not going to happen if a Democratic Party condescends to Latinos in that kind of way. And so, uh, but thankfully, it's a good thing that this idea of a rising demographic majority is, is actually wrong. We saw it in 2020 because the only reason why Donald Trump was competitive was that he increased his share of the vote among non-white voter groups, um, among African-Americans, among Asian-Americans, especially among Latinos. Uh, and the only reason why Joe Biden won is that he did much better than Hillary Clinton among white voters in 2020 compared to, to, to 2016. And it's also not true in how people actually identify themselves. Uh, you know, there's a lot of mixed race Americans now. There's a lot of people who uh, feel more in a more complicated way than this sort of very easy division of society into whites and people of color, on the other hand, uh, would suggest. And that's a good thing. Because I don't want to live in a country where 30 years from now I can walk down the street, look at the color of somebody's skin and say, I know who you're voting for. Yeah. And by the way, even if, uh, quote unquote, the right party always wins because they somehow managed to cobble together that majority, but there's still going to be, you know, 47% of a different group that keeps getting outvoted every time and that's really angry and, by the way, has a lot of guns. That's not going to be a good society for anybody to live in. So I really think this, this whole idea is really bad and we have to create a politics in which uh, people vote based on their values and based on, on, on their beliefs rather than based on their ethnic group. Um, so the, the way that gets framed customarily is identity politics. And it mm -hmm. sounds like you think identity politics... Uh, does not lead us in a good direction. Look, the term identity politics is so broad that it really depends on what you're talking about. I think it's perfectly fine to have certain forms of intersgroup politics. Yeah. Right? So it's perfectly fine to say, say we have like an Armenian American association that says we really want the United States to uh, acknowledge the Armenian genocide and we're going to lobby for that. It's perfectly legitimate. It's perfectly legitimate to have a kind of age-based identity, the American Association of Retired Persons fighting for the interests of, of, of more elderly Americans. And it's perfectly fine to have Latino groups and African-American groups and so on. Asian uh, groups. That, and Asian groups that fight for their interests. It, like a Asian Americans are very fragmented. So, but right, right, yeah. But all of that is perfectly fine. That's normal. We're always going to have that. What I think, though, is that on top of these different groups in society, we also have to have a common identity. Yeah. What I think is that when you start telling people, you can't understand me, like we're from different ethnic groups, right? The idea that we can't understand each other, I think is really pernicious. Now you might have some experiences that I don't have, and it's my duty as your fellow citizen to listen to your experiences. And when you say, hey, growing up, I was marked for being Asian marked in these kinds of ways, I should have empathy for that and say, hey, that's an experience of life that I didn't have, that's bad, well, what can we do to remedy that? What can we do to make sure that your kids don't have the same experience? That's my duty as a citizen. But this idea that I can't, understand what you're telling me about your experience, and I can't understand the political implications of that, which is that that's a violation of the principles that I believe in, and that we can't then have genuine solidarity of saying, 
let's fight together to make a society that accords to our values better than it does at the moment. That to me is really perverse. And sometimes when people talk about identity politics, that's the kind of rhetoric they engage in. And that, you don't win majorities like that politically, but it's also just a really dystopian view of, of a possibility of communication between people, of, of ways in which uh, uh, we are supposedly so deeply defined by, by our ethnicity, but we just can't communicate as human beings. I, I, that goes against my deepest beliefs of human equality. One other example you pose in the book is around this phenomenon of accusing people of cultural appropriation. Mm. And you pose that some degree of mutual influence is actually very positive and can help you build this cultural patriotism in the sense of unity and mm. identity. The term cultural appropriation, I think, has such power because it often is applied to situations that really are unjust. But it often misdescribes what makes those situations unjust. So let's take a classic example, right? In the 50s and 60s, there was many uh, really talented black artists who didn't have big careers because they couldn't perform in some concert venues, because big record labels were uninterested in, in signing them up because of their race. Now, that's clearly unjust. Wrong, yes. Um, and then there was white artists sometimes who took their songs and then had big careers with them. That's also wrong. Yeah. Now, what's wrong about that? What's wrong about that is the discrimination against these African-Americans, uh, the way in which they should have had a big career and weren't allowed to the way in which white artists stole their work, right? was just straightforward intellectual property theft. Um, but now it is described as cultural appropriation. And that makes us uh, sort of think that any time that one group influences another, and perhaps especially any time that, uh, you know, a, a more dominant group is influenced by a less dominant group somehow, we should in general worry about that. Uh, and that to me is wrong because one of the wonderful things about this country is the way in which different influences come together, uh, from fusion cuisine to uh, Old Town Road as a song that you know has all kinds of different musical influences. And that is the history of humanity. There isn't a big cultural achievement anywhere in the world that doesn't have the influence of lots and lots of different groups. Often when people talk about cultural appropriation, they point to stuff that is unjust that we should fight against, but we should not make the mistake of putting mutual cultural influence under some general pole of suspicion, because that's antithetical to what it means to be human and what it what what it takes to build a successful, diverse society. So there's a period in the 70s when there was like a kung fu craze, and mm. uh, you know, like a, a a lot of ball players today, have, for example, have Asian tattoos in their body. Uh, and I see this as awesome myself. I'm like, oh, I'm glad that <laughs> you know, it's not like, oh, what are you doing <laughs> with like Asian stuff? It's like, you know, I'm actually kind of pumped that our you know culture is uh, having an impact uh, in, in some way. So you, in passing, said something like, hey, you have this, let's call it 47% of the population. They have a lot of guns. Uh, and if you make it seem like there is no path to victory, then things are going to get very, very negative, violent, destructive. Something drove you to write this book. Um, and writing books takes a while. So we're- um, I don't recommend it. <laughs> I recommend reading the book. I don't recommend writing books. I uh, know. I mean, reading is more <laughs> pleasurable than writing them. Much faster, too. Uh, so you must have been concerned, um, uh, I would say. Uh, and I I've had a number of democracy thinkers mm -hmm. on this podcast, which is uh, probably something you gathered. <laughs> I had a joke where it's like, hey, if you write a book about democracy, uh, you know, Yang wants to talk to you. So one of the very consistent themes in other countries is that you have, when you have conflicts, is that you have a, a dominant ethnic group that feels like its status is threatened, mm. and then they end up lashing out in various ways. And at the extreme end, it can become violent and, and ugly, and that some of the most extreme conflicts have taken this shape. Yep. Uh, and there are uh, elements of that happening in the United States. We should be doing everything we can to mitigate against that phenomenon here which includes what you're describing is like not to like paint everyone with a broad brush being like, you know, you're white, you're going to vote this way. Like you're not white, you're, you're going to vote this way. Is that a fair characterization of uh, of like a concern that you share? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, my last book, The People vs. Democracy, was one of the first to warn about the rise of populism and the way that it really can be a threat to liberal democracy. Um, Look at you taking credit for calling it. No, I continue. No, it's, yeah. So, you know, I started, I published a first article about um, declining support for democracy in many democratic countries in, I believe, 2014, 2014, 2015. So this is before Trump had won and so on. And people were still saying, you know, what I was taught in graduate school was, you know, yeah, there's all kinds of countries in the world where democracy is pretty unstable. But in the United States and France and these countries that are affluent but have had changes of government for free and fair elections a number of times, 
democracy is stable. You can fast forward history 30, 50 years, and it's we'll still be doing democracy. D's and R's for yeah. you know. And now we realize that our democracy is in real danger, right? Oh yeah, no, it's um, not that stable. So that's what I've been thinking about for a lot of the last five or six years. And then I started thinking, okay, one of the reasons for this, precisely as you're saying, is demographic change and, and the fears that that causes and the real difficulties that diversity causes in a democracy. So how can we deal with those? And how can we make sure that people don't go nuts so that they don't vote for these really dangerous figures? You know, there's an election in France very soon, or it's where yeah, in the middle yeah, of totally. it. And what, what, what strikes me there is that you know, Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour, these far-right figures, have this really pessimistic vision of what's going on in their country. I mean, there's not a counter vision that's optimistic from the rest of society. No. And so people say, you know what? Everything is terrible. Everybody is agreed that everything is terrible. Perhaps we just need somebody who defends my group. Yep. Perhaps I should vote for these people. Yep. What we need in order to avoid that is to oppose the really dark vision of politics that something like Donald Trump has with an optimistic vision. Positive and unifying. Yeah, but saying, look, it's hard. We're doing something hard here, but we're actually doing relatively well. We've made progress over the last decades. We can continue to make more progress. Yes, we'll always have different groups and, you know, uh, that won't always be easy, but we can also have a real sense of common pride in our country. Uh, you know, we can build a society that most people, whatever group are a part of, are actually excited to live in. And if we don't manage to do that, then precisely the worst kinds of authoritarians are going to win. So, yeah, that, that was a lot of the motivation I had for writing this book because I know from my own uh, family's history what it means when diverse democracies fall apart or diverse societies fall apart. What, what suffering that, that means. And every generation of my family for the last three or four generations has, has experienced that in very direct and extreme ways. So the stakes are really high, but we need a positive vision to, to make it work. You close the book with uh, something of a prescription. We've talked about some of those recommendations uh, already, investing in patriotism, trying to avoid these pessimistic doom and gloom views where it's like that we're irredeemable and that these prejudices are so baked in that, uh, you know, combating them is futile to try and uh, celebrate progress. You also, I love what you call the chapter 10 problem, which is, by the way, a total pet peeve of mine that someone will spend nine chapters uh, painting a dark picture. And then when it comes to solving it, you're just like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you told yourself, you're like, I'm going to go strong uh, in terms of the recommendations um, uh, that, that you champion. So what are the big things that we can do? Look, there's a bunch of things we can do as background conditions, right? When you feel like my economic future is bad, I'm in direct competition with these other uh, ethnic religious groups, the institutions aren't listening to me, the elites are looking down on me, then you're not going to be in the right frame of mind to be friendly to your neighbor who just moved in who's somehow different from you, right? If you have a society in which you have a sense, I'm doing better than my parents where my kids are going to do better than me, I'm getting a fair shake in this society. And you have a sense that we have welfare state institutions that don't say what you get from the state depends on your race, but that say actually uh, everybody who's in need uh, is going to get some reasonable level of assistance um, to help them succeed. When you feel that the institutions are responding to me and they're taking me seriously and they're not looking down on me, you're just much more likely to say, hey, somebody new just moved in next door. Let me let me help them. Let me be open with them. Let me let me talk to them. And so there's a whole bunch of, uh, you know, grainy suggestions, some of which uh, I, I see eye to eye uh, on with you, including institutional reforms that can help us get there. But actually, my most fundamental uh, optimism doesn't come from I came up with this amazing idea, and if only people implement it, then everything is solved. It's from the development of society. It's that America is a much better place today than it was 30 years ago. When I was born, a majority of Americans thought that it was morally bad for people from different ethnic groups to marry each other. Now it's down to the single digits. Right? This country has actually changed a lot in the last decades. And I know that when you talk optimistically about the present and about the future we're likely to be able to get to, that can sound a little bit suspect because a lot of pessimists say, look, I'm just shouting about the unjust things in our society in order to fix them. And so if you're saying, oh, but things are actually all right, that's, you want to blind yourself to that injustice. You don't care about the injustice. But that's not what it is. Nope. Um, where I'm coming from is, first of all, to make further progress, we have to actually know whether things are improving or not. If things are improving, then we can you know, push on the accelerator and, and try to improve them more. If they're not improving at all, we have to throw out all of our principles and start from scratch. So it's important to recognize that we have been improving because it gives us direction for how we can improve further. 
And secondly, it's this political point that if you tell people our society is so terrible that nothing is working at all, then the pessimists on the right are going to become much more attractive. And so, yeah, the answer is there's a whole set of things we can do at the political level, but actually most fundamentally, when I look at the politics, I get worried. When I look at the heart of society, I get more optimistic. And we've got to make sure that the politics doesn't screw up what are largely positive developments in the middle of America. Well, I agree that having traveled this country, uh, the people are good um, and the political system is less good <laughs> is, yeah. is the, way, the way things are shaking out. And the media also less good, where the media really enjoys this demographic destiny narrative. Uh, they try and racialize everything. They try and make it seem like there is this political zero sum game going. And one of my major complaints about the Democratic Party is that they're buying into this demographic narrative uh, and they're leaving places like Ohio and Iowa where they were very, very competitive and saying, well, this place is too white, you know, like 93 percent white, like, you know, let, let's get lost. That's going to affect Iowa most prominently because Iowa, people know this, if you know American politics at all, like first uh, caucus state has this prominent place. Uh, it's probably where it may well lose that prominence mm -hmm. in part because it's not a swing state anymore. It mm. went from being purple, a state that Barack Obama won, to now it's R plus eight or nine. Um, and so the Democrats are like, well, why are we going to be investing here? Because it's not a swing state and its uh, demographics are no good. And what that's going to do is it's going to accelerate the bifurcation. It's going to accelerate the identity of the parties as being very racialized where it's like look if you're a white state you're going to be republican and if you're a diversifying state then we're going to come to you so we're going to right, start right. investing in georgia and arizona and just give up on ohio and iowa because as long as we can eke out a national win like you know our ends are served and it doesn't really matter people's lives are getting better or worse um, oh and that the country is more likely to fall apart and, and uh, end up um, uh, in this uh, racialized conflict uh, the case you're making is something that i feel very strongly about because like I, I see where we're heading, you have these institutions that just serve their own incentives and needs. Uh, and, you know, like the quality of life is secondary, like the people deserve better to your point, like people, the, the people are good. Uh, mm. It's just our, our leadership is letting them down because it's become so institutionalized. Yeah. So for me, one way of thinking about the state of America today is that we have a kind of cultural civil war of the elites, right? You look at the, the top echelon and people deeply hate each other. They're very, very polarized. They live in completely different thought worlds. And then when you look at society, actually people are much more reasonable. They're much more uh, sensible to various considerations uh, and there's much more overlap. So the question is, is the deeply polarized elite going to manage to generalize its conflict and turn the whole country into this uh, pitched battle between two different groups? Or is the bulk of the population going to be able to resist that imposition? Wow. I love that characterization. At this point, I would put, you know, like the average person uh, in charge faster than I would uh, some of the people who are actually in charge. <laughs> yeah, so there's this famous old line, which I think is originally by a conservative thinker, but, but that I agree with that, you know, I'd rather be ruled by the first hundred people in the Cambridge Telephone book than the assembled Harvard faculty. And much as I love my, my friends who teach at Harvard, I agree with that. I think by and large, uh, to be a small democrat, to believe in democracy has to be to believe, to believe that ordinary people are capable of, of decency and virtue. And they sometimes get it wrong, of course, um, but so do elites. And, and we have to have that kind of trust. So I agree with that. Um, you know, populism is a term, you know, it implies something that is not meant and it's used by so many different people in so many different contexts. And so I sort of try to avoid the term nowadays sometimes. Um, but, but in political science, what, what it is supposed to mean is somebody who has two characteristics. One is that uh, the anti-elitist, which is perfectly legitimate. Um, you ran in some ways an anti-elitist campaign. Barack Obama ran in many ways an anti-elitist campaign in, in 2008. It's a normal part of American politics or po any democratic politics to say, hey, some of the people who are in charge right now are doing things wrong. I stand for ordinary folks and I'm going to do better for them. That's the normal thing that a democratic politician is going to always say. right? But there's also a second element, and that's a sort of anti-pluralism. That is saying, you're either with me or you're against me. You're either on my side or you're illegitimate. Real Americans approve of me and anybody who dislikes me is not a real American. 
the best summary of this is uh, Evo Morales, the um, uh, Bolivian politician's uh, Twitter account, which is Evo es Pueblo. Evo is the people. So if you're not with Evo, you're against the people. And that is something that does unite, uh, you know, from Evo Morales to Donald Trump to Viktor Orban uh, to Narendra Modi to, to many really quite dangerous politicians. And so, you know, when I talk about populism in my academic work, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about listening to people. I'm not talking about doing stuff that's popular. I'm not talking about left economic policy. Uh, I'm talking about this is a politician who says, if you disagree with me, you're illegitimate. And that is a very dangerous mechanism. Well, congratulations on the book. It, it made me think about some of these problems in a much deeper and different way. Um, I, I think there's a lot of wisdom here. I hope people take your recommendations to heart. Are you encouraged right now, uh, Yashi, you're in like the beginning of a book tour? Um, uh, like, what, what do you think? I, I feel like people are coming um, to some of the same conclusions that you're drawing in different yeah. ways. I, I think there is a hunger to escape the, you know, cultural civil war of the elites. I think there's a hunger to say the world is a little bit more complicated than the image you get if you just listen to to one particular tribe and uh, buy into anything they say. I think there's a hunger for a slightly more optimistic vision of, of the country and of the future. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm 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 feeling that and. Hopefully, if you're feeling that and you read the book, you can go and give people even better arguments to try and do that. Yeah, uh, again, it's filled with both wisdom and data. The Great Experiment, Why Diverse Democracies Fall Apart and How They Can Endure. Yasha Munk. Yasha, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Forward with the Yang Yang is produced and edited by Mark Finder Media and co-hosted by Zach Grauman, Jules Turpak, me, Andrew Yang, and friends. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts, watch us on YouTube, and subscribe today. If you like the show, leave us a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and let's move the country forward. Forward.